As always, it's good to be with you. If you would open your Bibles to Acts 7 with me, I would appreciate that. been on the road for two weeks, so we're going to try to do it off the pad since I didn't have a printer with me. It was good to see several of you at Yosemite and enjoy the ministry of Yosemite. It was good to see the campstras there also. I spoke to Trevor on the phone the other day, and he they are doing well, even though it's quite, quite warm where they're at. I thought it was hot where I was at, well, it was warmer yet where he was at. We're going to look, start with the 54th verse, if you would. Acts 7 and 54. I have this habit, bad or otherwise, of giving you the chapter and then not giving you the verse, hoping that everybody finds a chapter, because with me, if you give me the chapter too soon and the verse too soon, I, by the time I find the chapter, I forget the verse. I know none of you have that problem, but I tend to be like that. So, Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. It's a story of the martyrdom of, of Stephen, and he has preached a great message. That convicted him so much that they gnash him with their teeth. But, verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witness laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. But when he had said this, he fell asleep. The next chapter in verse 1, and Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the re regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and healing men and women, committed, and hauling men and women committed them to prison. And so we have the story of the introduction of the life of Saul with the death of Stephen. I believe Paul was a member of the, of, of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. I believe that he was very motivated to stamp out Christianity. We know that he believed that the Christians were blaspheming the name, of Christ, the name of God by claiming that Christ was the Son of God. And his reaction was to put Christians to death. 
who claimed that claim. Let's turn to Matthew, if you would, Matthew 26, and let's just look at one of the, at the trial of the Lord Jesus, and I think we should note that the reason why they put Jesus to death was because he claimed to be the Son of God. So it makes perfect sense that the Jews would put Jesus to death for claiming to be the Son of God, that any of his followers who claim the same thing would be likewise guilty of blaspheming their God. Matthew 26 and verse 62. The trial of Jesus Christ, and it says this, And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemies. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. I was with a Mormon last week and witnessing to him, and he said, well, he really wasn't God. He was a sub-God. And I said, do you not realize that they put him to death because he claimed to be God? He didn't claim to be a sub-God. He said he was going to sit at the right hand of God. The only person who would possibly sit in the presence of God is God himself. That's what's the great story of Hebrews when it talks about how many times does it tell us that he sat down. You only sit in God's presence. Man kneels in God's presence. But the great news is that there's a man, Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God. As Paul would tell us, great is the mystery. Christ, the Messiah, was manifest in the flesh. God manifests in the flesh. What a wonderful thing. And yet we come to people who deny it, and we come here as we look at Saul, and Saul is busy putting people to death who believe that. One of the things to note was that he's out. They weren't called Christians at this time. They were called the people who followed the way, and that was the way of Christ. And they were teaching that Jesus was God, that Jesus was God. Now, Paul most likely witnessed the death of Jesus Christ. And Paul thought Jesus Christ was dead and buried. Why would these people claim that he was God? Why would they claim that he somehow was resurrected when Paul had seen him die? I mean, people just don't rise from the dead, do they? And Paul was sure they had not. Let's look at Acts 9. Paul was extremely motivated. He was sincere in his motivation. Paul thought he was serving God. Paul thought God would reward him for his efforts. 
And Paul wanted to put an end to these deceivers who were confusing people about true faith in God. And so we come again to verse, chapter 9 and verse 1, and we find Saul again. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any in this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now Paul was so motivated that it wasn't enough that he had cleared out Jerusalem and scattered them and chased them out of the city. He wanted to chase them into the next town and the next city and the next city and and finish them off. He had a zeal for God. Unfortunately, his zeal for God, as we're going to find out, was misdirected. Verse 3, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. In his testimony later in the book of Acts, he'll call it a great light, a great light. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I think at this point, Paul still doesn't know who he's dealing with. But he knows the scriptures. He knows the scriptures probably better than any of his contemporaries. He was a rising star. He had been educated by Gamil, the very top rabbi that there was. You run across people, and people are quick to flash their credentials nowadays. And if someone's been to Harvard, they usually mention it to you in the first two or three sentences that you're talking to them, because they want to, you know, if they've been to seminary, they usually mention the seminary they've been to very early on in a conversation, especially if you're talking about spiritual things. Credentials were huge. Well, Paul had credentials that he could match against anybody. If we could turn to Philippians, we would see him lay out his credentials. They matched anybody's. Paul had been to the Harvard of his time. He had the highest degrees. He knew the scriptures, and the scriptures a number of times show that God appeared to man, starting with Moses at the burning bush. And God spoke out of that burning bush. And so I believe at this point in time, Saul knows that he's dealing with God. He was familiar with the passage in Isaiah where Isaiah said he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And so his response is, who art thou, Lord? He obviously knows he's dealing with deity at this point. Who else would appear to you from heaven and shine a light on you that blinds you? And I believe that his whole life, as we know, was completely changed by the answer. Because the answer is this. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. But Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead. Paul later will tell you that he has a right to be the apostle because he saw 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he saw the raised again to life Jesus. It totally altered his life. It totally meant everything to him. Some, even in our colloquialism, even in our culture, we talk about a Damascus Road experience. Let's, what motivated Paul? Let's look, at, let's look at Romans 10 for an answer. Paul could later write this, because I believe this would have been his testimony before. Verse 1 of, of Romans 10, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal for God. That was Paul, he had a zeal for God. But notice what it says next, but not according to knowledge. I think the saddest thing in life is that I've run across so many people, some of them who believe they have a zeal for God. Russ was sharing with me that this Hispanic family that was saved, that they were raised in the traditions of the Seventh-day Adventists. I've, I've, I've had neighbors who were Seventh-day Adventists. They were, had a zeal for God. I have friends who are Mormons and they have a zeal for God. I have a few friends who are Jewish and they have a f zeal for God. But the sad part is it's not according to knowledge. I have friends who say, I'm spiritual. But the scriptures tell us there's, that, there's only one way Christ was able to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Zeal without knowledge is nothing. And so he goes on to say, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have sought submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. There's many people who have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They have a zeal. And usually it's because they're trying to establish their own righteousness. They're trying to appease God. They're trying to please God. They're trying to do things right by God. But what is righteousness? You ever deal with someone who have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge? So what's righteousness? Righteousness is God's righteous standard by which he measures everything. And what does Paul say? Look, look at Romans 3. Paul came to understand this. I love to preach the gospel in Romans 3, especially when you go into the jails. Because there's something they truly understand. But sometimes it's the people who are without knowledge that have a zeal for God need to hear Romans 3 also. 
And the 10th verse says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Now, when you're speaking to prisoners in a jail, it's very easy. They don't consider themselves righteous. Everyone, or most of them, realize that they're guilty at least of the law of the land, if not guilty before God. But there's many people that I deal with who think they're the exception to this verse. And I love that the scriptures clarify it by saying, no, not one. And in this litany of, in the rest of this passage, these are Old Testament passages that Paul is quoting. These aren't things he dreamed up. Paul loves to quote the Old Testament. As you read Romans, just make sure you have a good cross-reference Bible because almost everything he says in Romans is cross-reference to the Old Testament. And then look at verse 23. For the sake of time, we won't read the whole litany. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. It's, 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 it's an indictment against mankind in their standing before God. And he summarizes it all in verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's righteous standard is his glory and man falls short of that. We cannot achieve that on our own. And so now he's going to explain righteousness. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And so Paul uses terms that are difficult to understand. Paul uses judicial terms that unless you probably understand the law, you might have trouble with. But the ultimate goal is to be justified. To be justified. There's a man on trial for a watch. And at the end of the trial, the judge declares, was it judge trial, not a jury trial? And the judge says, I find you justified. And the man says, what does that mean? He says, well, I find you innocent of what you're accused of. He goes, well, what does that mean? He says, well, I find that you you're, have no standing before the law and there's no penalty that's owed to you. And the man says, well, what I really want to know if I have to return the watch. Well, man can be fooled. God cannot. The judge found this man justified when he was really guilty. Not true with God. God knows our hearts. He knows what we do. And yet God's a righteous God, and he doesn't let us just die and go to hell. He provides a way of escape. And that's what the word propitiation means. It means satisfaction. It's the same word that was translated mercy seat in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. But the idea is, is that where we find mercy, and God can provide mercy for the sinner because someone else pays that penalty. 
And so Christ is set forth as a propitiation, as a substitute. We spent some time thinking about that blood that was shed that made that possible. And so God, in verse 26, he declared at this time his righteousness, that God's an absolutely righteous judge. Some people think, well, God will somehow balance things out. If I do enough good, the fact that I'm not really, really righteous and there's a few bad things on the marker, well, that's okay because I'll serve God, I'll be zealous, I'll, I'll, I'll somehow make it balance out. That God would not be just if he found one person have done enough and another person has not done enough. God would not be just if he judged you on your looks. God would not be just if he judged you on your intelligence. God would not be just if he judged you on your family upbringing. God would not be just if he judged you on your zeal. But God's a just judge. Paul will tell us in other places that in ultimately that there's no flesh that will be glorified in God's presence. The truth of the matter is, is that if anybody can get to heaven and say, I did it my way, there was absolutely no need for God to send his son to die. We heard that verse this morning, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And what kind of love is that, is that if to send your son to die if people could get to heaven without that. And the fact of the matter is people cannot get to heaven without the death of Jesus Christ. And so look at work verse 26 says, Declare I say at this time his righteousness, that he might be both just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. And so God is both just and the justifier of those that, of him that believes in Jesus. Absolutely, we have a just God. And he's so just that he provided to us a way of escape. So one of the things I, I, I'd like to just think about here is the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Paul. And I have to stop and ask myself as I look at this, the, res the fact that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, when Paul had seen him dead and buried and knew he was dead, when he realized now that he's alive, it changed his life. And as you read what he has to write, it was the major theme of his preaching of the gospel. He never left it out. And I have to tell you that there's times that I've been guilty of leaving out the resurrection. We have a Savior who has conquered death. And Paul always talked about that. Let's look at a few passages that talk about how Paul, I believe, was impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1. I'm turning, I'm forgetting to tell you where we're going, so my apologies. Ephesians 1. We're going to start with the 19th verse. 
This is one of the great prayers of Paul in the scriptures. There's two in Ephesians. This is one of them. He's praying for the saints, and this is one of the things that he's praying for. He's not praying for their physical well-being. He's not praying for other things. He's praying for them to understand. And one of the things he wants them to understand, in verse 19, it starts, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to a working of his mighty power? And he uses in this passage, he uses five different Greek words that all mean power or great might. One of them is dumas, which we get the idea of dynamite from. And he says in when he, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul had this wonderful understanding of the resurrection that it was the most powerful act of God. More powerful than the creation. Stop and think about that for a moment. To conquer sin and death was the most powerful thing. To have a, his son die but then come back to life. And he says this, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in also which is to come. And as you study the Old Testament, Satan tried again and again and again to end the line of the Messiah because he knew that the seed that was promised was the Messiah and he didn't want that Messiah to come. And I'm sure when he entered into Judas and got Judas to betray the Lord and got the Jewish leaders to crucify him, that I believe he thought he had won at that point. And when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he was totally defeated. And I'm not sure we always realize that. Far above all principalities and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which has come has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The head of the church is the most powerful being in the universe because he's God himself. But notice verse 1 of the next chapter. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. And that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that has made us alive who were dead in sins. Sometimes we don't connect these verses, and sometimes when they put these chapter breaks where they put the chapter breaks, it makes it even more difficult to connect it. But he's telling you that the very power that he wants us to be aware of, which raised Christ from the dead, is the very power that has raised us from being dead in our sins to newness of life. And there's no reason why we need to be controlled and conquered by sin because we have a Savior that has conquered that. Turn over to Philippians 3, if you would. In verse 10. Philippians 3 and verse 10. I know these are familiar verses to us. Many people have made these verses here. They're life verse. Philippians 3 and verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might obtain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul's desire was to know the power of the resurrection. And so the question I have to ask myself is, do I know the power of the resurrection? I'm, I know him. And I would have to say I'm getting to know him. I'd have to say that there has been some suffering not on the scale of some people in this room and not on the scale of some very dear friends of mine. But then I have to ask myself, what do I know about the power of the resurrection? And does it impact my life? Those are tough questions. And then over Colossians 2, if you would. And we're going to look at verse 12. Well, let's look at verse 11 for context. In whom... Also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of sins of the flesh of the circumcision of Christ. It's an interesting study. I would suggest it to you is that look at things that are made without hands. There's a number of things that are made without hands. I want you to know that this isn't physical circumcision because it's circumcision made without hands. Which leads us then to verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein you are also risen with him to the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And I want you to know that this baptism is spiritual also. Just as a circumcision is spiritual, he is not speaking about water baptism here. He is speaking about spiritual baptism. And he says that we have been risen with him to the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. His understanding of the newness of life that we have, the ability, if you go to Romans 6, he, he explains this in great detail, and we simply don't have time to look at it now. But the idea is that we were buried with him. We died with him at Calvary. We were buried with him in the grave. And we've been raised to newness of life. And baptism, water baptism particularly, is a wonderful picture of that, but we have to remember it is simply a picture of the reality of spiritual baptism. And it's a great testimony to the reality of our changed life in Christ. And then he says this, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you, all your trespasses. What a great truth. It's because he was raised from the dead that he can forgive all our trespasses. If he was still in the grave, as Paul so clearly tells us in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we would be of all people most miserable. We read out of Romans 5 today, but the great news, let's look at Romans 5. I, I, it was not a passage I was going to turn to, but 
After reading it this morning, I just have to go back to Romans 5. My apologies. I love this passage. Romans 5 and verse 15 will sort of pick off where we left off this morning. It's a great passage, but notice what it says. But not as the offense, so also as a free grift, for as through the offense of many of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And not as it were by one that sinned, so as the gift for judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Because he's resurrected, we can reign in life. It doesn't stop there. Therefore, by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The offense of one brought death. The obedience of one brought eternal life, life eternal. But that would not be possible if he hadn't conquered death, if he hadn't conquered death. The last passage we're going to look at is 2 Corinthians well, maybe not the last. You know why preachers say last, right? I've already told you that one. It's to give the people hope. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Sorry, chapter 4. I wrote down chapter 5, but I meant chapter 4. And I believe in a way that this is Paul's testimony. He gives his testimony a number of different times in a number of different ways. When he gives his testimony to Agrippa and he, and, he, and he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, at the end he says, I'm almost, Felix says, I'm almost persuaded to believe in the resurrection. Here's Paul. Verse 6, for God, who commanded the lights to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Earlier he said that they do so, they seek to establish their own righteousness, that they do so without knowledge. And here he speaks about the true knowledge, the only knowledge that can bring you to God. And that's the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. It's in the face of Jesus Christ, that face, I believe, that Paul saw on the road to Damascus. But we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What a change in Paul. He went about establishing his own righteousness in a very, very zealous way. But now he realizes that he is simply an earthen vessel that the glory, that the glory might be of God. 
to come to that understanding that we fall short of the glory of God, that we've been made alive through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that we can be vessels to show forth the glory of God. And so he says this, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always a bearing about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. You want to know someone who suffered for Christ, it was Paul. Later in this book, he'll, he'll list his beatings and his lashings and his stonings and the times that he was left for near death. And then he's going to tell us why he's willing to suffer all of this. Verse 11, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you, that he was willing to suffer so that they might hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they also might have life. We having the same spirit of faith, according as written, I believe, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore spake, knowing this, that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Paul was willing to risk his life. One of the great stories out of chapter 11 is that Abraham was willing to take Isaac up to the mountain because he believed that the promises of God would be fulfilled through Isaac. And he believed that if he did sacrifice Isaac, that the Lord God would raise him from the dead. No one had ever heard of a resurrection before that, but that was Abraham's faith. Abraham did not allow his experiences to cloud his faith. When God promised a child, he believed even though his body was dead, we're told in Romans 4. I have to admit that my experiences often cloud my faith. And I struggle to know that I've never heard something or seen something that God's promised it that it's going to be real. But Paul did not have that problem. Now at this time, you might be telling me, but Paul witnessed the resurrection. I never had that opportunity. I'll turn over to 2 Peter with me. And see what Peter has to say about that very thing. I want to tell you, Abraham had never witnessed a resurrection, but he believed it was possible. And Peter says this in verse 16. For, you have not followed, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. If anyone ever had an experience that was a lifetime experience, a millennial experience, even maybe a two or three millennial experience, is to be on the Mount of Transfiguration and see the Lord in all his glory. It was Peter. Verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. What an experience. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were in the most holy mount. Peter wants you to know that this wasn't imagined, that this was a real experience. This wasn't a fable. He saw the Lord Jesus glorified. But notice what he says in the next verse. We also have a more sure word of prophecy. Stop and think about that. Let that soak in. That Peter says with all his experience and his eyewitness and what he saw, that the scriptures, the sure word of prophecy, is more sure than his eyes. Lately, we've had a number of books put out of people who've gone to heaven and seen things. Well, my first reaction is to see what the scriptures tell us about heaven and doesn't line up, and sadly, they don't. So I don't know where they went, but they didn't go to heaven that the scriptures speak about. And so Peter's telling us that our experiences, as great as they are, must line up and must be true because the scriptures are more sure than experiences. So you might be telling me, I've never seen the resurrected Christ. Maybe I would be motivated like Paul if I'd seen the resurrected Christ. Maybe I would live in the power of the resurrection if I'd seen the resurrected Christ. But Peter would tell us this. We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, but the prophecies came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they moved by the Holy Ghost. We live in a day and age where experience means a lot. But the scripture tells us four times that the just shall live by faith. And my desire is to live by faith. My desire is to know the power of the resurrection and to live a life in the light of the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, part of that is that he's alive and he's coming again. That's motivation because John tells us if we live in the light of his coming again, we will be pure as he is pure. So one of the objects of learning and understanding the power of the resurrection is to understand the power of his return and what that means to us. But I would encourage you to ask the question I have to ask of myself. Do I live in the power of the resurrection? Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we thank you for the testimony of Paul. That he was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that it motivated him for how he served. And that the zeal that was without knowledge turned into a zeal with knowledge. Oh, Father, we'd ask that we would understand the power of the resurrection so that we might have Paul's zeal. And we might have zeal with knowledge. 
that we serve a risen Savior, that he's coming again one day to stand on this earth, but before that, that he's coming to take his church to be with him. We thank you, Father, that the scripture says that we reign in life, that we who were dead in sins and trespasses have been made alive, quickened again, and that we reign in life, that we have eternal life. We thank you, Father, for the blessings that we have in your Son. We, we would readily admit that we fall short in our understanding of those blessings. That we sometimes live lives that are defeated. We sometimes live life that's without power. That we sometimes live a life that looks awful lot like the world's life and those in the world as they live. And so, Father, we would ask that we would have an understanding, that we might know Christ, that we might know the power of his resurrection, that we might be willing to suffer for him so that, Father, we might live lives that glorify the Lord Jesus in all that we do. Again, we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to come and die in our place so that we might have life. We thank you for his obedience so that we might have eternal life. And we give you thanks in his name, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.